Section 13 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 5. Section 13, A Wedding and a Revenge, by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. From Lorna Doone. However humble I might be, no one knowing anything of our part of the country would for a moment doubt that now here was a great to-do and talk of John Ridd and his wedding. The fierce fight with the dunes so lately, and my leading of the combat, though I fought not more than need be, and the vanishing of Sir Counselor, and the galloping madness of Carver, and the religious fear of the women that this last was gone to hell, for he himself had declared that his aim, while he cut through the yeomanry, also their remorse that he should have been made to go thither, with all his children left behind, these things, I say, if ever I can again contrive to say anything, had led to the broadest excitement about my wedding of Lorna. We heard that people meant to come from more than thirty miles around, upon excuse of seeing my stature and Lorna's beauty, but in good truth out of sheer curiosity and the love of meddling. Our clerk had given notice that not a man should come inside the door of his church without shilling fee, and women, as sure to see twice as much, must every one pay two shillings. I thought this wrong, and as churchwarden begged that the money might be paid into mine own hands when taken. But the clerk said that was against all law, and he had orders from the parson to pay it to him without any delay. So, as I always obey the parson when I care not much about a thing, I let them have it their own way, though feeling inclined to believe sometimes that I ought to have some of the money. Dear Mother arranged all the ins and outs of the way in which it was to be done, and Annie and Lizzie, and all the Snows, and even Ruth Huckaback, who was there after great persuasion, made much a sweeping of dresses that I scarcely knew where to place my feet, and longed for a staff to put by their gowns. Then Lorna came out of a pew halfway, in a manner which quite astonished me, and took my left hand in her right, and I prayed God that it were done with. My darling looked so glorious that I was afraid of glancing at her, yet took in all her beauty. She was in a fright, no doubt, but nobody should see it. Whereas I said to myself, at least, I will go through it like a grave-digger. Lorna's dress was of pure white, clouded with faint lavender, for the sake of the old Earl Brandier, and as simple as need be, except for perfect loveliness. I was afraid to look at her, and as I said before, except when each of us said, I will, and then each dwelt upon the other. It is impossible for any who have not loved as I have to conceive my joy and pride when, after ring and all was done, and the parson had blessed us, Lorna turned to look at me with her glances of subtle fun subdued by this great act. Her eyes, which none on earth may ever equal or compare with, told me such a depth of comfort, yet awaiting further commune, that I was almost amazed, thoroughly as I knew them. Darling eyes, the sweetest eyes, the loveliest, the most loving eyes, the sound of a shot rang through the church, and those eyes were filled with death. Lorna fell across my knees when I was going to kiss her, as the bridegroom is allowed to do, and encouraged, if he needs it, 
a flood of blood came out upon the yellow wood of the altar steps, and at my feet lay Lorna, trying to tell me some last message out of her faithful eyes. I lifted her up and petted her and coaxed her, but it was no good. The only sign of life remaining was a spurt of bright red blood. Some men know what things befall them in the supreme time of their life, far above the time of death, but to me comes back as a hazy dream, without any knowledge in it, what I did, or felt, or thought, with my wife's arms flagging, flagging around my neck, as I raised her up and softly put them there. She sighed a long sigh on my breast, for her last farewell to life, and then she grew so cold, and cold, that I asked the time of year. It was now Whit Tuesday, and the lilacs all in blossom, and why I thought of the time of year with the young death in my arms, God or his angels may decide, having so strangely given us. Enough that so I did, and looked, and our white lilacs were beautiful. Then I laid my wife in my mother's arms, and begging that no one would make a noise, went forth for my revenge. Of course I knew who had done it. There was but one man in the world, or at any rate in our part of it, who could have done such a thing. Such a thing. I use no harsher word about it, while I leaped upon our best horse with bridle but no saddle, and set the head of Kickums toward the course now pointed out to me. Who showed me the course I cannot tell. I only know that I took it, and the men fell back before me. Weapon of no sort had I, unarmed and wondering at my strange attire, with a bridal vest wrought by our Annie, and red with the blood of the bride. I went forth just to find out this, whether in this world there be or be not a god of justice. With my vicious horse at a furious speed, I came up Black Barrow down, directed by some shout of men, which seemed to me but a whisper. And there, about a furlong before me, rode a man on a great black horse, and I knew that man was Carver Doon. Your life or mine, I said to myself, as the will of God may be, but we two lives not upon this earth one more hour together. I knew the strength of this great man, and I knew that he was armed with a gun, if he had time to load again, after shooting my Lorna, or at any rate with pistols and a horseman's sword as well. Nevertheless, I had no more doubt of killing the man before me than a cook has of spitting a headless fowl. Sometimes, seeing no ground beneath me, and sometimes heeding every leaf and the crossing of the grass blades, I followed over the long moor, reckless whether seen or not. But only once the other man turned round and looked back again, and then I was beside a rock with a reedy swamp behind me. Although he was so far before me, and riding as hard as ride he might, I saw that he had something on the horse in front of him, something which needed care, and stopped him from looking backward. In the whirling of my wits, I fancied first that this was Lorna, until the scene I had been through fell across hot brain and heart, like the drop at the close of a tragedy. Rushing there through crag and quag at utmost speed of a maddened horse, I saw, as of another's fate, calmly, as on canvas laid, the brutal deed, the piteous anguish, and the cold despair. The man turned up the gully leading from the moor to Cloven Rocks, through which John Fry had tracked Uncle Ben, as of old related. But as Carver entered it, he turned round, and beheld me not a hundred yards behind, 
and I saw that he was bearing his child, little Ensie, before him. Ensie also described me, and stretched his hands and cried to me, for the face of his father frightened him. Carver Doone, with a vile oath, thrust spurs into his flagging horse, and laid one hand on a pistol-stock, whence I knew that his slung carbine had received no bullet since the one that pierced Lorna. And a cry of triumph rose from the black depths of my heart. What cared I for pistols? I had no spurs, neither was my horse one to need the rowel. I rather held him in than urged him, for he was fresh as ever. And I knew that the black steed in front, if he breasted the steep ascent, where the track divided, must be in our reach at once. His rider knew this, and having no room in the rocky channel to turn and fire, drew rein at the crossways sharply, and plunged into the black ravine leading to the wizard's slough. Is it so? I said to myself, with brain and head cold as iron, though the foul fiend come from the slough to save thee? Thou shalt save it, Carver. I followed my enemy carefully, steadily, even leisurely, for I had him as in a pitfall, whence no escape might be. He thought that I feared to approach him, for he knew not where he was, and his low disdainful laugh came back, laugh he who wins, thought I. A gnarled and half-starved oak, as stubborn as my own resolve, and smitten by some storm of old, hung from the crag above me. Rising from my horse's back, although I had no stirrups, I caught a limb, and tore it, like a mere wheat horn, from the socket. Men show the rent even now with wonder, none with more wonder than myself. Carver Doone turned the corner suddenly on the black and bottomless bog. With a start of fear he reined back his horse, and I thought he would have turned upon me. But instead of that he again rode on, hoping to find a way round the side. Now there is a way between cliff and slough for those who know the ground thoroughly, or have time enough to search it. But for him there was no road, and he lost some time in seeking it. Upon this he made up his mind, and wheeling, fired, and then rode at me. His bullet struck me somewhere, but I took no heed of that. Fearing only his escape, I laid my horse across the way, and with the limb of oak struck full on the forehead his charging steed. Ere the slash of the sword came nigh me, man and horse rolled over and well-nigh bore my own horse down with the power of their onset. Carver Doone was somewhat stunned, and could not arise for a moment. Meanwhile, I leaped on the ground and awaited, smoothing my hair back and bearing my arms as though in the ring for wrestling. Then the little boy ran to me, clasped my leg, and looked up at me, and the terror in his eyes made me almost fear myself. Ensie, dear... I said quite gently, grieving that he should see his wicked father killed. Run up yonder round the corner and try to find a pretty bunch of bluebells for the lady. The child obeyed me, hanging back and looking back and then laughing, while I prepared for business. There and then I might have killed mine enemy with a single blow while he lay unconscious, but it would have been foul play. With a sullen and black scowl, the carver gathered his mighty limbs and arose, and looked round for his weapons, but I had put them well away. Then he came to me and gazed, being wont to frighten thus young men. I would not harm you, lad, he said, with a lofty style of sneering. I have punished you enough for most of your impertinence. For the rest I forgive you, because you have been good and gracious to my little son. Go, and be contented. 
For answer I smote him on the cheek, lightly, and not to hurt him, but to make his blood leap up. I would not sully my tongue by speaking to a man like this. There was a level space of sward between us and the slough. With the courtesy derived from London and the procession I had seen, to this place I led him, and that he might breathe himself and have every fibre cool and every muscle ready, my hold upon his coat I loosed, and I left him to begin with me whenever he thought proper. I think he felt that his time was come. I think he knew from my knitted muscles and the firm arch of my breast and the way in which I stood, but most of all from my stern blue eyes, that he had found his master. At any rate, a paleness came, an ashy paleness on his cheeks, and the vast calves of his legs bowed in, as if he were out of training. Seeing this, villain as he was, I offered him first chance. I stretched forth my left hand as I do to a weaker antagonist, and I let him have the hug of me. But in this I was too generous, having forgotten my pistol wound and the cracking of one of my short lower ribs. Carver Dune caught me round the waist with such a grip as never yet had been laid upon me. I heard my rib go. I grasped his arm and tore the muscle out of it as the string comes out of an orange. Then I took him by the throat, which is not allowed in wrestling, but he had snatched at mine, and now was no time of dalliance. In vain he tugged and strained and writhed, dashed his bleeding fist into my face, and flung himself on me with gnashing jaws. Beneath the iron of my strength, for God that day was with me, I had him helpless in two minutes, and his fiery eyes lolled out. I will not harm thee any more, I cried, so far as I could for panting, the work being very furious. Carver Dune, thou art beaten, own it, and thank God for it, and go thy way, and repent thyself. It was all too late. Even if he had yielded in his ravening frenzy, for his beard was like a mad dog's jowl, even if he would have owned that for the first time in his life he had found his master, it was all too late. The black bog had him by the feet. The sucking of the ground drew on him, like the thirsty lips of death. In our fury we had heeded neither wet nor dry, nor thought of earth beneath us. I myself might scarcely leap with the last spring of over-labored legs from the engulfing grave of slime. He fell back with his swarthy breast, from which my grip had rent all clothing, like a hummock of bog oak, standing out of the quagmire. And then he tossed his arms to heaven, and they were black to the elbow, and the glare of his eyes was ghastly. I could only gaze and pant, for my strength was no more than an infant's from the fury and the horror. Scarcely could I turn away, while, joint by joint, he sank from sight. End of section 13 Recording by Lee Smalley